glad to have you here today. As we continue in our new sermon series uh, post-Easter, uh, we are looking at the I Am statements of Jesus that we find in the Gospels as Jesus uh, is, is explaining what it means for him to be God and for God to be here with us and how Jesus may make us to sort of reframe who God is, but not necessarily changing who God is, but just a new understanding of the way we understand God. Last week, we talked about Jesus as a good shepherd, and this week, we're turning now a few chapters later in John to John chapter 14, where Jesus says that he is the way, the truth, and the life. Uh, we're going to look at the full scope of, of where that verse comes to us in, though, because the, where he says this, how he says this, informs more than just saying, I'm the way, and the truth, and the life. There's more to this story than just that statement. So, before we dig in, let's say a word of prayer over our text this morning, and then we'll get going. Gracious God, we, we thank you for gathering us here together on this day that we're not sure if it's winter or spring or what's going on. God, just be with Texas as we uh, try to figure out what season we're in. Also, if you could, uh, you know, make it spring, that'd be cool too. Um, God, as we prepare to read this text this morning, we ask that you uh, make it come alive for us, that you uh, place us in that room with your son Jesus, that... That, that, that you would allow this, these words to resonate within our hearts, allow us to be reminded of some simple truths, um, allow us to be challenged with maybe a new way of understanding, and allow us to leave this place ready to love in your name. It's in your son's holy and precious name, by the power of your spirit, we say amen. So let's begin. John chapter 14, beginning in verse 1. It says this. Do not let your hearts be troubled, says Jesus. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house, there are many dwelling places. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and I will take you to myself, so that where I am, there you may be also. And you know the way to the place where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? And Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you know me, you will know my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. So I love the movie. We're going to stop there for now and keep going here in a little bit. I love the movie The Princess Bride. Any other Princess Bride fans in the room? If you're not, I'm going to judge you. Like, I, I've loved this movie since I was a kid. I make references to this movie all the time in my life. If you spend any time with me, you'll hear me say something about mailwidge or, you know, no more rhyming, now I mean it. Anybody want a peanut? You know, if you don't, if you don't laugh at that, then we're just... That, that just brings you down a little bit in my book. It's okay. My point is go home and watch The Princess Bride whenever you're done with worship today. Uh, it's a great film, though. It, it's fun. It's a fairy tale, but it's kind of a self-aware fairy tale in a way. Um, it, it's, it, the, the way the story is, un, is unfolded, there's a, a boy whose grandfather's reading him a, a story called The Princess Bride, and then we sort of see that story come to life. And the, the basic premise is this. There's a, a young, beautiful woman named Buttercup. And, uh, and, and she is in love with this farm boy named Westley. And uh, Westley is in love with her, and it's wonderful. And so he decides he needs to go off and make a fortune that's worthy of beautiful buttercup. And while he's gone, she receives a letter that says that uh, Westley has been 
um, attacked, his ship was attacked by the dread pirate Roberts, which is this very mysterious figure that is said to, you know, viciously attack people while they're at sea. And so, of course, she is, you know, so sad and she feels like she's lost the love of her life. And um, she ends up uh, betrothed, you know, you know uh, arranged marriage to the, the prince that she can't stand. And, uh, and before the wedding, though, she gets kidnapped by these three men. Um, and in hot pursuit of the kidnappers is this man in black who we come to know as the Dread Pirate Roberts. And there's this wonderful moment, though, as the Dread Pirate Roberts is sort of taking control of Buttercup and of the three men that, that are her kidnappers. And, um, you know, she, she doesn't really like this Dread Pirate Roberts too much. But then there's this big reveal at one point in the movie. And if you haven't seen it, it's your fault. It's like 25, 30 years old. So spoiler warnings. Um, <laughs> Uh, where Dread Pirate Roberts reveals that he's actually Wesley. It's Wesley in disguise. Of course, the audience has known this almost from the moment he's on the screen, but she realizes it's Wesley. What, at some point along the way, Wesley became the Dread Pirate Roberts. And that, that moment of the big reveal in Princess Bride for her is kind of sweet because, you know, he's sort of tumbling down a hill and she throws herself down the hill after him because she realizes, oh my gosh, this man that I thought I didn't really understand that I've spent this time with, now I know who he really is and, you know, I'm going to offer for my life. and um, Similar kind of thing happens in the Gospel of John here. This is the big reveal, right? You like that connection? Um, this is the chapter where Jesus offers the big reveal to his disciples. Um, in, in this opening verses, we, we see him say that the Father that you worship, that you adore, that you want to find, I am that Father. I am He. He and I are one. We, we, are, we, are, we have a oneness together. Um, and of course, this can be confusing, right? This can be confusing. Um, the Apostle Thomas, who we know also is the Apostle who questions whether Jesus really rose from the dead. He asked to see his, his wounds after the, the resurrection. And, you know, Thomas is a tester, right? And, and, and he's a critical thinker, and, and he's a troubleshooter. He's analytical type. Anybody else resonate with Thomas? I know I do, right? Um, and so Thomas's first thought when Jesus says, I'm going to go, you know, uh, he, he, he reveals to his disciples that he's going to undergo, you know, his death, his crucifixion, and the disciples are understandably worried by that. More than that, he tells them, not only am I going to be crucified, guys, you guys are going to help make it happen. Like, whoa, that brings down the party, doesn't it? He's, you know, he says, someone's going to betray me. Peter, you're going to deny me. And so, oh, and, and, and then I'm, I'm going to leave. And so Jesus' disciples, they're his friends. They're like, what, what do you mean you're going to leave? You're our rabbi. You're our teacher. You're the one that has kept us together all this time. You're the one that has told us so much, revealed so much to us about this, this Father God that we worship and adore as, as Jewish people. And uh, so what do we do now that you're leaving? Because clearly we don't understand. You just told us we're going to help bring about your death. Like we're not very good people, obviously. What do we do since you're leaving? How do we find this father that you're going to live with. And Jesus says, you, you already know the father. You, you know the father because you know me. And this is, uh, for us today, maybe not like as dramatic and climactic as it would have been at the time, right? Imagine you're one of those disciples and you spent time with the man whom you believed was the greatest teacher that the world had ever known, that, that you'd seen perform miracles in God's name. You probably believed he was a prophet, maybe even a Messiah, but you hadn't really realized, oh my gosh, this is God with me, looking me in the face, extending his hands to me. This is God. 
the God that I'm wondering how I find is sitting in a room with me right now. And I, sometimes I have to go back to these kind of moments that seem anticlimactic in 21st century America, but at the time would have been earth-shattering. And I have to place myself in that situation and go, when is the last time that I've really taken Jesus seriously about being God? That here's this man, this person who's fully human, with skin and hopes and dreams and fears and, and everything that I have, and it's also God and everything that God has and the might and the majesty and the power, and it's all wrapped up in this one person. And how many times have, have I asked myself or said to myself, you know, I just wish I could see God. I wish I could understand God better. I wish I could, I could even reach out and touch God. And, you know, God can be so ethereal and so mysterious and so up there and beyond me. I wish I could just, I wish God was more tangible. And I have to go, wait a second. <laughs> Jesus is sitting in the room with me. And he's looking at me and he's talking to me and he's reaching his hands out and saying, go ahead and touch I think it's powerful that, that if we want to see God, we can look at Jesus. Like that, that's a uniqueness in the Christian faith, that God would give us something so tangible to express God's self, like the person of Jesus Christ. So what does this mean in a, in a realistic sense? It means that, you know, I've got to get back in the word more often. Whenever I have those thoughts of God, I just wish I knew what God was thinking or what God would say about this. Well, guess what? There's like four books that talk about what Jesus thought and said and did, right? Like I have to remind myself, Scott, you can go through and you can read the Gospels and you can even get a Bible that's got red letters. So it's like, these are his words, you know, um, right here. If you don't know how quotation marks work, you know, um, how nice is it that I can actually go and look at like, this is what God would be like here on earth. You know, what if God was one of us? He was. He was. That's kind of the point, you know. How cool is that? Like, again, I, I get that it's simple, but sometimes these simple things are important to come back to. And I go, well, when is the last time that I spent time and walked through one of the Gospels? And like really intentionally, like taking not a chapter a day, but a handful of verses a day and went, okay, what does this teach me about God? Not just how does this make me feel good, but what does this reveal to me about who God is? Because this is God in the flesh, so Jesus is, in, this, in the course of this, this 14th chapter of John, what he's really beginning to unpack, and this is where we're going to get a little bit more heady, and, and then we'll bring it back down, so just go with me for a second. Um, so this 14th chapter of John, when, when, when Jesus says, I'm the way and the truth and the life, you know, a lot of times we teach that phrase, and we go, I'm the way and the truth and the life, and we teach it as, you know, Jesus is saying that, you know, everyone needs to follow Jesus if they want to make it into heaven, and like, okay, that's, that's one aspect of this verse. You could, you could read that and talk about the, you know, how we gain entrance into heaven or whatever. We're, I'm not going to go down that road because we're going to talk about Jesus saying, I am the gate. Uh, I think next week, Reagan gets that one. Yay, Reagan. And so um, that deals a lot with the same themes of, okay, if Jesus is a gate, who's in and who's out? So, Reagan, I hope you're ready to talk about that next week. It's going to be a fun one, um, I'm sure. The broader scope of this chapter, though, what Jesus is doing is he's laying out 
essentially Trinitarian theology, which is really kind of cool. Um, he, he's talking about himself in relation to the Father, and then even later, which we're not going to read these verses today, but I'm just telling you, later in the chapter, he talks about himself in relation to the Holy Spirit. And this is important because it's the first time in the Gospels that Jesus is actually talking about these things. You know, Matthew, Mark, and, and Luke, the closest they ever get to Jesus talking about the, the Trinity is when he offers the Great Commission and says, go therefore and baptize, uh, make disciples and baptize believers in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And that's at the very end of the Gospels. He mentions it once, and that's it. The Gospel of John is written sometime after uh, the Gospels of Mark and Matthew and Luke. It's the last Gospel that's written historically. And so by that point, the, the church itself had wrestled a lot with this Trinitarian theology. And so John was, was keen on including this teaching from the lips of Jesus, that, that this is not something that, that sort of we came up with after the fact, but that, that Jesus was committed to understanding this relationship. So I say all that because he gets into that in these next few verses. We're going to talk about what does it mean for God to be in the Trinity and, and not just Jesus. So Philip says to him in verse 8, it says, Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and we will be satisfied. So he's still focused on this Father God, this, the Father, that this is the Lord, the, the God that they have worshipped as the Jewish people. And Jesus says to him, have I been with you all this time, Philip, and you still do not know me? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak in my own, but the Father who dwells in me does, the, does his work. So Jesus thinks that he's just done this big reveal, right? He says, you know, it, it, when he's talking to Thomas, you know, Thomas has his question. He says, you know, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you know me, you will know my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him, right? And all of us are like, wow, great. And Philip's like, yeah, where's the Father? <laughs> but the Father, though, where is he? So, so much for the big reveal. You know, Jesus is still trying to get them to understand. And it, the thing is, it's easy for us to laugh at Philip, right? You know, how do you not get this? But we forget, like, this is the first time they're hearing this stuff. No one had ever said the words Trinity in that way before. It talked about God being three in one. Jesus is laying this out for the very first time. And I think, actually, we can laugh at Philip, but a lot of us really struggle with the idea of Trinity as well. I see it all the time. I see it in my own faith. I think that we make some mistakes when we encounter God as Trinity. This is, now, this is like a basic doctrine of the Christian church, and yet it's so hard to understand that one plus one plus one equals one, right? That, that, that God exists as three persons in one uh, united substance, uh, God, right? So the mistakes that we make with the Trinity, I think we make one of two big mistakes. One is that we play favorites. What does this look like? Well, I mean, a lot of us would just say that we naturally connect to one of those persons of the Trinity more than others. Some of us really like the idea of a father God, a parent God who oversees and overlooks and has, you know, limitless power and, and you know, has, has been creating and, and working in the world since the beginning of time. A lot of us like that idea. Some of us don't. Some of us struggle with the Father God image. Some of us struggle with Father God language. Some of us struggle with the actions that we see attributed to Father God in the Old Testament. 
Some of us really love Jesus. I would hope most of us really love Jesus. I think Jesus is the part of the Trinity that we're at danger of playing favorites with the most in the American Christian church. I think um, I go to a lot of churches, and, and, and I'll be guilty of this sometimes too, where like everything is Jesus all the time, Jesus, 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 and like the Father and the Holy Spirit are like awkwardly standing in the corner like, hey, we're here too, you know. No, you, okay, just him, you know, and Jesus is just sort of like the thing. And, and, I, and not that I think worshiping Jesus is bad, right? Like I'm a Christian pastor, of course. I think worshiping Jesus is good. I think that worshiping only Jesus and praying only to Jesus and singing only about Jesus and Jesus, 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 and never, ever wrestling with the fact that Jesus is one part of the Trinity, like that gives us a one-third understanding of our faith. Um, Jesus is awesome. Jesus is God. Jesus is not all of God, not in the way that we understand it in the Christian church. And then some of us really love the Holy Spirit. You know, I said in American Christianity, we, we kind of single out Jesus a lot of times. I, you know, in other parts of American Christianity, the Holy Spirit is uplifted a lot. In the Pentecostal church, the power of the Holy Spirit is, is lifted up a lot. My point is this, that uh, when we look at the Trinity, odds are most of us play favorites, um, there's one part of that trinity, or maybe even two parts of that trinity, that, that we tend to feel like we interact with more, and we don't really think about or, or, or talk about or, or, or wrestle with any, you know, the others that we don't think about. I think a lot of us probably lift up Jesus, or lift up the Holy Spirit, or lift up Father God, and, and, and sort of at the detriment of our relationship with the other two persons. The other mistake that I think we make with the Trinity is that we try to separate the parts of the Trinity. Instead of having one plus one plus one equal one, we have one and one and one, and we've got three gods, right? And we try to separate them like, well, there's God the Father, and then there's a God the Son, and then there's a God the Holy Spirit. And of course, this is like the, the great struggle with Trinitarian theology, believing in a three and one, is that um, it's very easy to, to kind of separate them out. Uh, and and the, the most common way I see this done is when we talk about uh, Old Testament God versus New Testament God, right? Um, where we say, oh, I don't, I don't like reading the Old Testament because that God is mean and scary and angry, and the New Testament God is loving and gracious and kind. Like, like God just had like a personality disorder or something, right? Um, and and that's, not, that's not what happens. That's not our understanding of God. Our, our understanding of God in the Christian church is that God is unchanging, that, that the same God who is at work in creation and even b- before creation, outside of time, that same God is at work in Jesus Christ, that same God is at work with, through the Holy Spirit in the early church. And so I think sometimes, you know, going back to the playing favorites, I think we love Jesus because we see him as sort of a fun alternative to mean, scary Old Testament God, right? Like, well, well, God was kind of rough around the edges, but then Jesus came and made it all better, right? Like, that's, that's not an accurate way to think about God. The same God that's at work in the Old Testament is the same God who comes down in the person of Jesus, is the same God who chooses mercy and chooses grace, is the same God who works for mercy and grace and love after Jesus. Um, seeing that continued line of God from Father to Son, the Holy Spirit, like that's, that's really important in our work as, as individual theologians, as individual Christians in our, in our time of reflection and prayer to see that God is a continuous line, that there's not like, you know, mean old angry God and then left turn loving Jesus, right? Like thank goodness for Jesus, thank goodness he calmed God down. Like that's, that's not the way it works. Jesus is not a loving alternative to the Father, but a divinely human expression of the Father. 
And I think when we, when, what it does for us is it allows us to go back and reread our scriptures in a new light. To see that, that once we've studied the gospels and we understand who God is in the person and work of Jesus Christ, how do we see that same grace and that same mercy and that same love at work in the Garden of Eden, at work in the story of Noah, at work in the story of the Israelites, at work in the stories of the, of the early Israel nation, at, the work in, at work in the exile of the Israel pe- Israelite people, at, at work in the Psalms, at work in the prophets? How do we see that same God present, a through line? Because I think that's going to give us a deeper, richer uh, understanding of not only Scripture, but really of who our God is and how consistent and constant our God is. So Jesus has this really sort of, oh, what moment with the disciples? And, but he, I think he, he understands that this is really hard stuff to grasp, especially for a bunch of guys hearing it for the first time. And so he keeps going in verse 11, and, and this will be the last portion we read this morning. He says this, believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, but if you do not, then believe me because of the works themselves. Very truly, I tell you, the one who believes in me will also do the works that I do and, in fact, will do greater works than these because I am going to the Father. I will do whatever you ask in my name so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. And if in my name you ask me for anything, I will do it. Have you ever tried to pretend like you knew what someone was talking about but you didn't? Right? You know, you know you've done it. You know, mm-hmm. I do this all the time. This is like a random one. People try to tell me where they're from, and it's like some random town. Like I have no idea where that is. You know? Yeah, I'm from. You know, I'm from uh, Corkrell. It's over there past uh, Glennington. You know? Uh huh. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Because I'm just like, can we just get through this part of the conversation into what? You know? I, I, I don't. I don't know. I don't have like an atlas in my brain. I don't know where you're from. But I'll just sort of do that knowing nod. You guys do the knowing nod. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And inside you're just like, I have no. Have you ever talked to somebody and, and you knew that they didn't know what you were talking about, but they were pretending that they did? They were giving you the, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And you're like, you don't know what I'm talking about right now at all. I think Jesus was having that experience with his disciples in that moment. Where he's like saying, so I am the Father, the Father's in me, and, I, and, and I'm in the Father, and we've got, and, and they're all going, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And he's going, you guys have no idea what I'm talking about. I think Jesus could tell this. I think he knew that his disciples were struggling to understand what he meant about his relationship with the Father, what he meant about this sort of Trinity idea of understanding who God is. And he hadn't even gotten to the Holy Spirit yet. That's the best part. He hadn't even got to the part like, so when I go, there's like this other thing coming and you can't even see it. It's like, "Uh uh-huh, you know. The reality is that when Jesus reveals this, even to us today, Like I said, the Trinity itself is a mystery of faith. Like, there's no amount of thinking about the Trinity that is going to make it make perfect sense to us because one plus one plus one just does not equal one, right? Right? Right, right. I really hope, I mean, I know common core math is messing us up, guys, but let's, (laughs) let's get that right. Someone who understood the Trinity really well, if you want to know what it looks like to understand the Trinity, because maybe you're sitting here going, Scott, all this highbrow stuff, like, I just don't get it. That's fine. Plenty of times I don't get it. Most of the time I don't get it. Someone who did get it was a guy named Athanasius. Athanasius lived in like the 300s, like the original 300s, right? Um, And he was a a great thinker in the early church. He did a lot of work on understanding who God was in the incarnation of Jesus Christ. He did a lot of work around the Trinity. And he wrote what was called the Athanasian Creed. And it's like 
super long. Like if you go on Wikipedia, it's like really, really long. I'm not gonna read the whole thing. I'm gonna read, these are like the core essential parts here. This is what it sounds like when you really understand the Trinity. We worship one God in Trinity, in Trinity and unity, neither confounding the persons nor dividing the essence. You with me? For there is one person of the Father, another of the Son, another of the Holy Ghost. But the Godhead of the Father, of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost is all one, the glory equal, the majesty co-eternal. Let's keep going. And then to get a bit more complicated, uh, he says this, for like, as, uh, for like as we are compelled by the Christian verity to acknowledge every person by himself to be God and Lord, so we are forbidden by the Christian faith to say there are three gods or three lords. The Father is made of none, not, neither created nor begotten. The Son is of the Father alone, not made nor created but begotten. The Holy Ghost is of the Father and the Son, neither made nor created nor begotten but proceeding. You get it? Does your brain hurt yet? Anybody else's brain hurt? My brain hurts. When I read that stuff in seminary, I was like, what is he on about? I, like, what? I had to sit down and like, look at those two paragraphs for like a week before I even began to get to a place where I could start putting quotes in to sound smart in my papers, right? Um, that stuff is really dense and really complicated. Understanding Trinitarian theology is really dense and really complicated. And just like the disciples, there are going to be plenty of times that we just sort of look at our pastor or we read scripture and we look at our Bibles going, mm-hmm, uh-huh. And I think Jesus knows that we don't really get it. So what do we do when we're in this Christian faith and, and, and we believe that God the Father and God the Son and God the Holy Spirit are one, and yet they're also three distinct persons, and, and yet they're also united, and, and yet we also just want to get on with it, right? What do, we, what do we do with that when it proves really confusing? Because it's really confusing. I, when Jesus is talking to his disciples and he says, if you don't understand what I'm saying, at least believe in my works, I think he's saying something really profound there. And, and, and this is one thing that I love about Jesus. Two things I love about Jesus. One, I love all the teaching he does. I love all the critical thinking. I'm, I tend to be a little bit of a cerebral person myself. I love the fact that Jesus challenges us to have a faith that actually thinks critically, right? I love the fact that Jesus wants us to turn on our brains when we're in relationship with God. I love that. I love that. I love that. He gives us a lot of challenging things to think about. It's great. As Scott, who likes to think a lot about God, I'm also very thankful that Jesus always grounds the thinking in action, in, in, in who he is as a prophet and, and leader and rabbi here on earth, and, and in who he is as the Messiah, and who he is on the cross and the resurrected tomb. Everything Jesus teaches is just not things to think about. It's always grounded in the reality of the dirt and the wind and the, and the reality, the harsh realities of life in this world. He, he makes love real. And so he says, okay, maybe you don't understand how the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit are all related. Maybe this whole idea of Trinity is a little hard to wrap your minds around. Did you see me feed 5,000? Did you see me walk on water? Did you see me heal blindness? Did you see me cast out demons? Did you, did you see me encounter lepers and outcasts and tax collectors and prostitutes and people that this world never wanted to have at the table? Did you see me sit and dine with them? Did you see me hold their hands? Did you see what love looks like in relationship? Because that is what the Trinity is. It's love in relationship. Think about that. God and God's self is in relationship. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. There is this, there is this unity between them that, that 
has them so intertwined, so relationally intermingled that they're one. You don't get that? Fine. Look at what it looks like here on earth. It looks like sitting down with people that the rest of the world's unsure about. It looks like opening people's eyes to truth they couldn't see before. It looks like extending love and grace and mercy, not just in words, but in actions through feeding their hungry bellies and clothing their naked backs and putting roofs over their unsheltered heads. That's what this Trinity thing is about here on earth. So maybe thinking it through is too much. Maybe at some point you hit a brick wall. And maybe there's something you can learn about God by simply living the same way that Jesus lived. Maybe your hands and feet can teach you what your brain can't. Wow. I'm going to steal a, a closing story from Stan, who was preaching at 815. He was at confirmation retreat this past weekend. Uh, all of our confirmands uh, are up at Prothro Center up at Lake Texoma. And, uh, and I got to teach the confirmation students uh, this past semester. I was assigned the class on the Trinity. Yay. Trying to teach the Trinity to a bunch of seventh graders. I just walked in and was like, guys, here's the deal. We're all going to get super confused today, and there are no answers, all right? You know, and, uh, and so I'm doing the bad math, and they're just like, what is he on about, you know? And, and, but what, here's what was so cool about that day that I got to spend with them, is that, um, you know, we, we, we plowed through a lot of really heavy, heady theology. Um, but at the end, when I said, okay, the, the end of the day that I was teaching them, I had them uh, draw a visual representation of the Trinity in, in different groups. Like they were, you know, creating a brand almost for the Trinity. And they all like nailed it. They had these triangles and it's all related and here's Jesus and the Father and here's the Holy Spirit. And look, they're all one. And I'm like, oh my gosh, you guys are incredible. Um, so Stan goes on the confirmation retreat with these kids. This is sort of, they're at the end of their confirmation time. They're about to become full members of the church. They're about to officially profess faith in Jesus Christ. They're about to do all these really, really cool things. And um, Stan, one of the activities they did was have the kids go off and write a letter to God, then come back and talk about it with one of our pastors. Stan and Kay and Pastor Jacob uh, from Heart of Africa were all there. And Stan sat down with a, a young woman, seventh grader, um, and they started talking about faith and about God and about Jesus and what does it mean to believe in Jesus and what does it, you know. And she didn't sit there and go, you know, I believe in Jesus as the Godhead of, you know, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And neither, you know, the, the, the Father is neither created nor begotten. No, she didn't say any of that stuff, right? He said, well, you know, what does it mean for you to, to have this faith? And she said, you know, I, I love my faith and I love my church, she sort of connected the two, right? Notice how immediately she brought her faith to the real world. I love my faith and I love my church because I got to know Cadet. Because I go to school here in North Dallas, she said, and you know, I'm around a bunch of kids that are just like me who come from the same places as me and we're all very similar and we all have very similar experiences and here I got to meet Cadet. And Cadet was one of our young adults. He's a, he's a senior in high school. He was going as a volunteer on the confirmation retreat. And she said, I got to know Cadet and Cadet is from Africa. He's from Burundi originally. And, and, and she said, you know, he told me a story and, and he had to spend months, years, you know, in, in different refugee camps and places that were not his home until he finally was able to come here to America. And I'm just so glad that I got to meet Cadet and now I know Cadet and he's my friend. And that's why I love my church and that's why I love this faith. I think she gets it. 
I think she understands what Jesus is trying to teach, that it's not about having the perfect understanding of who God is. If I gave her a test, a seminary-level test on the Trinity, she probably would not pass it. She'd mess up somewhere along the way. She wouldn't have a perfect understanding of the Trinity. I don't care about that because she understands who God is. God is someone who brings us into relationship with people that we might not otherwise be in relationship with. God is someone who brings us into relationship and brings us into a relationship of love and of experience. And that's grounded. And I need that understanding of God because I'll get stuck in this stuff way too quick. And I'm learning that from my confirmation students. So as we go from this place into the world this week, you know, a couple challenges. Number one, yeah, challenge the way that you think about God, yes. Take on this idea of Trinity. See how it works on you and how it works on your faith to see God as three in one. Try praying to God the Father in the name of the Son, empowered by the Holy Spirit. And, and that will probably do something for your faith. But, but more than that, don't lose sight of the fact that this faith is always grounded in reality. And that God, the Trinity, is about loving relationship, and then so are we. And if you want to understand what it means for God to be three in one, maybe you'll learn that at a table sharing a meal, or maybe you'll learn that on a mission trip, or maybe you'll learn that in a soup kitchen, or maybe you'll learn that just in a conversation on a street corner. And maybe it's your hands and your feet that will teach you those things and not your head. Let us pray. Gracious God, we thank you for this day. We thank you for your word. We thank you that you are the way and the truth and the life that you lead us not to simply sit and think. You do lead us to reflect. You lead us to pray. You lead us to read scripture. You lead us to spend time with you alone and private. You lead us to think critically and engage our minds, but God, you also lead us to engage our feet and our hands and our bodies to be about your work, a work of extending love in relationship to a world around us. You bring us into relationship with people we might not otherwise ever meet here in church. You send us out into a world to continue relationships, forge new friendships, to create community. God, we're so thankful that you would lead us, that you would lead us in your way, in your truth, in your life not in our way or our truth or our lives as we've known them. God, I ask that you would ground us in a relationship with your son, Jesus Christ, that he would point us to a father God who knows us and loves us and cares for us and that we would be empowered by your Holy Spirit, that we would see the works of Jesus Christ in the Gospels and we would be inspired by them and we would be awed by them and that they would reveal new things about you to us. But God, remind us that you say we will do even greater works than these because you're not just someone to think about, but you're someone to follow. Father God, we pray all this in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, and empowered by your Holy Spirit. Amen.